0: seated. Well, I'm going to borrow heavily upon Jeff's Mary at the tomb, only because that's what I planned on teaching. So you get to hear about Mary twice times. (laughs) Hopefully uh, we can shed a little different light, a little different way upon the scriptures, but we We know the story of the crucifixion, and we know how Jesus was crucified between two criminals. Pilate, he called for a sign to be placed over Jesus' head on the cross, and that sign read, this is the king of the Jews. And this was written in Greek. Uh, Greek was the language of the learned, of the intellects. It was written in Latin, the language of the Roman government. And it was written in Hebrew, or the religious language of Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders, they want Pilate to announce, Jesus said he was the king of the Jews. And they didn't like the idea that Pilate had written Jesus, King of the Jews. But Pilate has a response to the Jews. And he says, what I've written, I've written. It stands. And there's tension there. There is a, a, a political power struggle going on between the Jewish leaders and Pilate. The Jewish people were of extremely hard people to govern. The Jewish leaders uh, resented Pilate for two great offenses that he had against them. Pilate had brought into the outer court, into the Gentile court of the temple, an image of Caesar. And we talked about this Friday night. But to the Jews, this was a graven image that had been brought into the temple. And graven images were forbidden In the Mosaic law. And they have a riot. The Jews riot. And people actually get killed in this riot. And the Jews are completely offended. By this image. In their temple. That was not good for Pilate's resume. In how to govern Judea. Pilate in another one of his blunders. Builds an aqueduct. Because Jerusalem, being on a higher plateau, it's difficult to get water up to it. So Pilate builds an aqueduct, and he needed a way to finance this because Rome is not going to finance this. So he takes temple money to finance this aqueduct. Uh, And that, again, is displeasing to the Jews, and they riot one more time. And this time they send a delegation to Rome though, and they basically are asking Rome, "Hey, get a get a bridle on this guy Pilate. He's doing nothing but offending your people down here." So in the political arena, they have won because Caesar responds by writing or giving an edict to Pilate, one more and you're out. You cause another riot and you will be removed as governor. And he's given this warning by Rome. So to the Jews, this was a sign of we can now get what we want because we have Pilate where we want him and he's afraid for his position. So there's this tension that goes on between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. And Pilate, he's forced to put Jesus on trial. But in this trial, three times we hear the Roman governor of Judea say, I find no fault in this man. I find Jesus has done nothing Worthy of death. Now, he's willing to scourge Jesus. That was nothing to a Roman, just to beat a man. But uh, he didn't want to kill Jesus. And he didn't want to kill Jesus because he was sympathetic to Jesus. He didn't want to please the Jewish leaders by crucifying Jesus. So, in John's Gospel, let me read you a couple of verses Verse uh, 12 and 13 of chapter 19. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him, speaking of Jesus. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. And when Pilate heard this saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down, in the Judgment Seat, in a place that is called the pavement but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. The Jews have now what they want and they have that controlling power over Pilate. They have said to Pilate, if you let Jesus go, you're not Caesar's friend. Well, that's where Pilate's authority comes from, is Caesar. The Jews want Jesus crucified. And their voices and their loud voices, uncontrolled, almost a mob scene, uh, prevails. And Pilate gives the death sentence to Jesus that he should be crucified. And the, the Jews, the religious leaders of Israel, driven by Satan, think they have won the battle. But Jesus has already declared, no one takes my life, I lay it down. I think that's good for us to remember sometimes. Jesus went to the cross out of obedience to the Father. No man put him on the cross. He put himself on the cross for our sins. So let's look at the crucifixion where Jesus, he's now hanging on the cross, and he's hanging there between the two criminals, the two thieves. And that's in Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ... "'Save yourself and us.' "'But the other answering rebuked him, saying, "'Do you not even fear God, "'seeing that you are under the same condemnation? "'And we indeed justly, "'for we receive the due reward of our deeds. "'But this man,' again speaking of Jesus, "'has done nothing wrong.' "'Then he said to Jesus, "'Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom.' And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You got two criminals there, one on each side of Jesus. One of these, well, they both blasphemed Jesus at first, but one of them has a change of heart. And you have one of these criminals blaspheming Jesus. And what is blaspheming? It is simply to attribute the works of God to Satan Through unbelief. The one criminal that blasphemed, he blasphemes Jesus by mocking him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Now he knows that he's about to die on the cross, but yet he still has this extremely rebellious, unbelieving heart. This criminal has to be unbelieving, the one that's blaspheming, for his statement to be so offensive. Even the other criminal replies to him, do you not fear God? What's the matter with you? Don't you see you're about to die? And the blasphemous criminal, he dies in his unbelief. And that is the ultimate act of blaspheming. He had no forgiveness. He received no forgiveness. He did not want forgiveness. But Jesus is there between them, and Jesus has heard both of these criminals' words. But he only responds to the believer. Notice that. He will later on the cross say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He doesn't even deal with the guy that's throwing these mocking accusations at him. But he says to the one who said, remember me, Jesus. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. This criminal is saved by a simple confession of faith. Lord, remember me. There was no Ongoing, what we would call a sinner's prayer. There there was not a lot of remorse there. He simply asked Jesus to remember him. And we see salvation coming to this criminal in his act of faith, and it comes to us in an act of our heart. We believe, and we are saved. It's that simple. You believe, you are saved. Now... Jesus only grants salvation. That's his prerogative to give or not give salvation. And there's a lot of debate. Well, I don't know if I'm ordained or preordained to be a Christian. Well, repent and find out. You'll find Jesus will save you. But Jesus granting salvation, and this criminal's there. He's not lamenting. He can't beat his breast. He's hanging on a cross. There is no sackcloth and ashes in his repentance. He can't come down from the cross and make all his past sins. If he cheated somebody, if he stole from somebody, he can't make those good. And notice, there's no water baptism. Now that throws a monkey wrench at a lot of people's understanding of being baptized for the remission of sins. No, the one who gives remission of sins is Jesus who died on a cross. Mm-hmm. But then we have, as Joe, uh, Jeff spoke about, we have three hours of darkness uh, in, in that area of the world. And when you go back and look, there was no solar eclipse at that time. An eclipse doesn't go for three hours anyway. But there for three hours, there's darkness upon the earth. How dark? We don't know. But uh, it, when a thunderstorm rolls in, we have one of those mercury vapor lights out back. And it'll get so dark that that light will come on just from the photocell that's in that light. So it can get dark simply from a thunderstorm. Was it a severe thunderstorm? We don't know, but it was dark. For three hours, it is dark. So, let's turn to John chapter 20, and we'll talk about the resurrection, and I, too, will talk about Mary (laughs) Magdalene. John 20, verse 1. Now, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. I always found that interesting. I outran Peter to the tomb. And this is John's commentary. <laughs> so John's going to tell us how quick he was afoot. But anyway. And he, stooping down, looked in. This is John. And saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around the head, not lying with the other linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw, and notices, and he believed. John believes once he goes into the tomb. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. It's interesting when we look at who is around and near the burial, the crucifixion of Jesus, and it's mostly women. Women had an intricate role in being witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Now, they didn't have many rights in that day, but Jesus has chosen that women should be around him when he dies and when he's resurrected notice who comes to the tomb at before daybreak Mary Magdalene. she was a sinful woman and we know that Jesus cast out seven demons out of her and that's a lot of demons and again that speaks of like Jeff said it speaks of the fullness of being demon-possessed So she was completely in tune, dominated by these demons. And she sees the tombstone, and she sees that it's been rolled away. No body of Jesus in that tomb. She runs and tells Peter and John, and and tells them they've taken the body of Jesus from the tomb. And there comes the foot race to the tomb. (laughs) John outruns Peter and he stoops down and looks in and he sees the burial cloths lying there. But John doesn't go into the tomb. Peter arrives and we know Peter for um, much of his boldness throughout his discipleship. Peter does go in. And Peter sees the linen cloths which... A linen cloth was a priestly cloth. You only wore linen if you were a priest. And there was a linen cloth lying there, and the head cloth or the the piece, the the napkin, the handkerchief, whatever you want to call it, that had wrapped around Jesus' head was folded and in place. Notice it's folded. Somebody has took time to fold that cloth and put it in place. They didn't just discard it. They folded it. Things are done here orderly. It just shows the order of the resurrection. John enters the tomb then, and he sees the linen cloths and the handkerchief, and John believes. Both John and Peter, though they they had forgotten Jesus' words, how he said he must rise again. You wonder what they were thinking of. What were they doing that they forgot the most critical part about the whole crucifixion of Jesus, that he must rise again? Probably because it didn't make much sense to them. The entire Christian faith hinges, it hangs upon Jesus rising from the dead. That's why we're Christians. We believe this. If there was no resurrection, there was no hope for the Christian faith. We're just another religion that's trying to find God out there if there was no resurrection. If there was no resurrection, then we would look upon Jesus like the rest of the world looks upon Jesus. A good man, a teacher beyond his time, a prophet, you know, and all these things good things that other religions like to say about Jesus. But we as Christians in the Christian world would have that same opinion of Jesus if there was no resurrection. The resurrection is what we base our faith upon. So let's read of Mary's encounter with her risen Lord. And that's in John 20. 11 through 18. But Mary stood outside of the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around, excuse me, turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have lain him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni which is to say teacher jesus said to her do not cling to me for i have not as yet ascended to my father but i go to my but go to my brethren and say to them i am ascending to my father and your father to my god and your god mary magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the lord and that he had spoken these things to her It's hard for us to place ourselves at the tomb site, but it's good for us to realize the despair that is going through the disciples. Can you imagine the pain that was going through Mary, the mother of Jesus? Now Mary Magdalene, she's there weeping. And Mary is looking through tear-blurred eyes when she stoops down and looks into the tomb. It tells us she was there weeping. The entry to the burial tombs was low, and you kind of almost had to crawl in because they didn't dig these gigantic doors to a tomb like we sometimes see in pictures. And they would roll a stone there in a little track that covered this entrance to the tomb, and the stone had been rolled back and removed where the disciples and Mary can see into the tomb. Now, the resurrection was absolutely miraculous. Jesus did not need that tombstone rolled away to be out of the grave. So as Jeff was talking about this morning, that gravestone was rolled away where we could see in and know there was not a body in there. So the disciples and others, they see this empty tomb. Mary sees the two angels in white sitting at the tomb, one at the head, the other at the foot, where Jesus had lain. And the angels have a question for Mary. Woman, why are you weeping? And she says, hey, they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've laid him. Then Mary turns around after talking to the angels and she sees Jesus, but does not know it's Jesus. Mary is quite familiar with Jesus. Has Jesus in his glorified body changed his appearance where he's not recognizable? Where We don't know for sure. We know they didn't recognize him. Or is Mary... So caught up in her grief, she can't believe Jesus is alive. Her eyes are blurred from weeping, and she maybe just simply doesn't recognize him. And we don't know if that's the case. But Jesus, he will ask Mary the same question the angels ask. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now we get insight into Mary's mindset because she thinks he's the gardener. She thinks he's the caretaker of this tomb area. And it says, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where, and I will finish anointing his body and care for his body. Mary was there to put spices and ointments on his body to preserve the body. And that's why she has come to the tomb. And Jesus saying one word brings Mary back into reality. And that is simply her name, Mary. And the tone of voice, it has to be a tone of voice that Jesus is using that awakens Mary out of her grief-stricken stupor. And that's what she was in. She's weaking. She's convulsing. She, her world has basically ended. And Mary now hears what her eyes cannot believe. Jesus isn't playing some hide and seek of my identity before the disciples and Mary. Jesus has gently awakened Mary with one familiar calling of her name. Lori and I use names for each other in private that we each recognize. I'm Honey. That's me. I'm Honey. (laughs) Lori is Lori Darling. <laughs> and we use these intimate little names with one another. Jesus has spoken Mary in such a way that she realizes it's my Lord. It's my Lord talking to me. <clears throat> my son Matthew prefers to be called Matthew. There's one trouble with that. Ever since he was a wee little guy, I've called him Matt. Wanting to be sensitive to him, so I asked him, son, do you want me to call you Matthew? He said, dad, you're the only one that's allowed to call me Matt, so don't change. I'm the only one that calls him Matt. I didn't realize that until he pointed it out. (laughs) I call him Matt. And we sometimes call those we dearly love with little pet nicknames or names of endearment. Mary returns the name to Jesus of ribboni And that actually means more than teacher, it means intimate teacher. My intimate teacher, ribboni And we get this connection between Mary and Jesus simply through two names, Rabboni and Mary. Lori and I currently have 10 cows. And I call them to come up near the barn and they come running knowing that I have a morsel of sweet feed for them. But let me give you the names of my heifers, Buttercup, she's the brown one, she's a good gal. (laughs) The one that bellers a lot is Bella, the name fits her. We have one with a white comma mark on her forehead, comma. And then there's blossom, and then there's Surprise because she came when we didn't even know her mother was pregnant. And then there's number 917. 917 has an ear tag, 917. Thought it'd be good to just name it that. We have four calves and we don't have names for the calves, but we have two boys and two girls in our calves. But it's so common for us as people to give our pets nicknames or kind of cute names like. You know, that uh, they go by, spot, rover, whatever. (laughs) But Jesus simply speaks Mary's name in a way that she realizes it is Jesus. Have you ever been asked by someone close to you, who's there? What's your reply? It's me. Who is me? Give your name. (laughs) It's me. And we know who it is. Mary, once she calls Jesus Rabboni, she instantly puts him in a death grip, probably down around his ankles, and she's clinging to Jesus so tightly that Jesus says to her, let go. (laughs) Or, do not cling to me, whatever version you like. <laughs> what are you doing, Mary? But Mary, I have a mission for you. Go to my brethren and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. And Mary obeys. She leaves Jesus. Was she delighted and happy to see him beyond words? Yet she's more obedient than her emotions to stay there and hold on to Jesus. And Jesus tells her his plans. I will ascend to my Father and God. Who is our Father and who is our God. I think the Lord's wanting us to receive a message here. I think God in the form of Jesus' desires that we believe as his people and understand. God is our Father, Abba, all-powerful, all-loving. I ascend to my God, your God, my Father, your Father. We're put in blessed company when Jesus says that. So, how are we to react to God the Father and God the Son? Well, Jesus, he didn't leave that hanging. He tells us how we're to react. And he even tells us how to address the Father when you pray. And in the Lord's Prayer, he says, When you pray, say... Not when you think about it. He's telling us how to address His Father. When you pray, say, Our Father who is in heaven. That's how God wants us, His children, talking to Him. It's that simple. Now, I don't have anything against somebody praying, uh, God, or this, or most heavenly Father, or whatever. When you pray, say, Jesus wants that same intimate relationship with us that he had with Mary when all he had to say to Mary was Mary and she knew who he was. Right then. It wasn't what she saw. It wasn't the tomb. When she heard her name, she knew it was Jesus. Jesus. Mary replied, Ribboni, my teacher, my intimate teacher. Jesus and God the Father want that same intimate recognition that Mary had when Jesus called her name. He wants you and I to have that relationship with Him. That's what He wants. In our scripture reading this morning, Jesus declared, My sheep know my voice. And Mary demonstrates that. Because as soon as Jesus speaks her name, she knows it's Jesus. Does Jesus know your voice. Do I know Jesus's voice? I've read that passage and looked and said, Lord, I'm not sure I know your voice. Shame on me. He wants me to know his voice. We've been, you know, it's been said, well, God spoke to me. Did you recognize his voice when he spoke to you? It's a good question. Have that intimate relationship with your Lord, with your God, that when he speaks your name, you know who it is. And I think he wants that from us. I think that's something our Lord desires. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father, first of all, We give you great thanks here this Resurrection Sunday that you said you must rise from the dead, and you did. You lived out in truth what you had spoken. You did rise from the grave. And with that resurrection, you give us hope. You give us hope that the world doesn't have, Lord. You give us hope of eternal life. You give us hope of a relationship with you, And, Lord, that alone is worthy of anything we could ever do. So, Lord, when you speak to us, when you call our name, give us ears to hear that it's you. Mary knew instantly who you were just by you speaking her name. We want that same intimate relationship, Lord. So, quicken our ears. Give us ears to hear When you speak, Lord, and then help us to be obedient, even as Mary was obedient to you. That's our desire. Thank you again for this Resurrection Sunday when you defeated death for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So.